Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, Oliver here. This week, Horace joins me on the show to talk about the latest research that he's done on climate and micromobility. Coming hot off the heels of COP26 and building on the work that we did earlier in the year, looking at the challenges of ramping electric cars to meet our climate goals, we yet again make the case for why micromobility not only offers something compelling in this space, but actually is integral to this future. I think this is incredibly important work, so please let us know what you think on Twitter and what we can do if you've got any ideas. In the meantime, here is Horace. Let's go. And welcome back to Micromobility. We have with us today, Horace, it is lovely to have you back. And it's lovely to be back. It's always a pleasure and always an honor. Hey, I'm stoked. I'm stoked. Where are you in the world at the moment? I am near Boston, Massachusetts. We are on the eve of Thanksgiving here, actually. Oh, phenomenal. Well, there's lots to give thanks for for this year. feels like we're coming out of a very prolonged pandemic and into, hopefully, some new beginnings, especially in the micromobility space. So I'm, I'm probably more excited than I've ever been about the stuff that I see coming down the pipe. Yeah. So one other thing I want to talk about is, besides the, the wonderful developments in the industry, is that we had this environmental brouhaha, this environmental boondoggle event, so-called COP26 or COP, up in Glasgow. Now... There's a problem, first of all, with this being the 26th, we should have had this sorted already, and yet here we are. Probably we're going to have another 26th before things are done. But the thing that was striking to us in the community has been that there was very little mention, almost no mention, of micromobility, of active mobility, of transport options besides automobiles with electric drive. And this is a grave disappointment, which... The way I explain it, and maybe I'm justifying it or I'm rationalizing, you know, the people there who were invited, who participated, were not what we might call leaders. They say, well, it's the leadership. But in fact, they were what I would call laggards. These are not the people who are historically innovators and would not be the people who are historically the adopters of innovation, the early adopters of innovations, I should say. And so, of course, they're not going to be latching on to something new. The electric vehicle, as it's currently being anticipated and promoted, is an invention, and even taking into account the lithium-ion battery, it's an invention from the early 2000s, like 2003 and 2004. Mm-hmm. The, the time when, when this was considered truly groundbreaking was in the first five years of the century. And now we're, you know, even a company like Tesla is about, I I don't know, 18, 19 years old. And, you know, it's a technology that's now beginning to get 2 to 3% adoption globally. And now is the time when everybody's like super excited about it and, and you're seeing huge market valuations for companies involved in this. And so some, somehow people got really excited about a new technology called electric car, but it's something that again is a mature from the point of view of technologies, these are mature lithium-ion batteries. 
that are coming down the cost curve. There's uh, very little in terms of breaking the mold of what a car is. So we've talked about this before, but it's yeah, not yeah. it's not surprising though that this is what people grab onto for a solution to the climate crisis, especially in transport. Let me play the the story so far. This is kind of like an argument for micromobility as an alternative to automobility for climate change. I've got this actually written down, so bear with me here. So to okay, well, look, I'm looking forward to hearing it. Okay, so to halt the worst effects of climate change, the world has agreed to limit temperature rises to 1.5 C or degrees C by 2050. Okay, 2050 is still a ways away, you know, being 2021, we've got about 30 years to go, 29. However, this requires cutting net emissions by 55% by 2030 and 100% by 2050. So again, the target is 2050, but we have to go already by 55% in only nine years. Okay, that's 55%. Now, over 100 nations have committed to this goal. This event was trying to get even more people to commit and more layers of society to commit. But we already have commitment from a majority of countries in the world. Now, transport accounts only for 24, only I say, but 24% of CO2 emissions. And of that 24%, right, the road transport is 74.5% of that. So, okay, so what else besides road? We've got aviation, shipping, mm-hmm. rail, and other. So 74.5 is road, and that as a percent of the total emissions in the world, the total emissions in the atmosphere, road transport accounts for 15%. Now, to give a contrast, people are saying, well, we should fly less. Aviation is super polluting planes, etc., are generally harmful, but aviation accounts for only two and a half percent of emissions worldwide. Okay, so think about the ratio, 15% for cars, two and a half percent for aviation. So the point is that overall transport is 24%. Some of it, like aviation and rail and shipping, are difficult to compress because these are long distance trips. These involve trying to go hundreds of miles. And therefore, it's very hard to get that done with electric drive. Now, some will be, and there'll be some clever developments, I'm sure. Maybe hydrogen will come you know, come into use. But fundamentally, it's very hard to get batteries to get you that far. So transport sure. demand, however, that's the picture today. Transport demand is expected to grow across the world as the global population overall increases, incomes rise, and more people can afford it. So the point is where we are today in terms of demand for kilometers, that overall demand is rising. More people are moving into cities. More people are finding the means to afford personal transportation. So we've talked about this before. So that target that we have is about, you know, getting more people to do more things with less. So as a result, so this is just a summary. The global passenger car market, or rather I should say the stock of cars, the the, the fleet of cars in the world, is now estimated about 1.1 billion. By 2030, the number is expected to reach nearly 2 billion vehicles and 3 billion by 2050. And this is an IEA estimate made in 2018. And I've done my own estimates based on vehicle lifespans and urbanization and income growth. So very close to the same as the IEA, and I did it independently. 
So we're looking mm -hmm. at a potential for 3 billion cars as a vehicle count. And also there's a question about how many kilometers that usually those go hand in hand. So combined, these factors would result in the large increase in transport emissions. Now, again, we're at 24% and we're expecting to see that grow. And as a result, now here's what happened at COP26. Several countries signed on at least to reduce, for example, coal emissions, emissions from farming sectors, the power generation sectors, industrial sectors, et cetera, et cetera. So there are, of the non-transport sector, there were several large commitments made to try to go below a certain number in, in emissions and hopefully hit this 1.5 target. Now, they certainly didn't make it, but there were several commitments made. However, what about transport? The IEA sustainable, now the IEA has a proposal out there which, which suggests that we can get to a very low number. They have a suggestion that we will phase out emissions from motorcycles, for example, by 2040, from rail by 2050, and by small trucks by 2060. However, emissions from cars and buses are not completely eliminated in their scenario until 2070. And this is, again, uh, what they consider to be an optimistic scenario. Mm. But if you read into it, this net zero scenario for 2070, beyond the target date, by the way, of 2050, nearly two thirds of the emission reductions will come from technologies that are not yet commercially available. In other words, this is like that proverbial cartoon where you have very complex calculations and then a big box drawn and inside the box you say then a miracle occurs and you get to the answer yes it's about miracles right now the IEA's proposal and what people are signing on to even if they are you know are going towards hard targets on co2 for non-transport sectors but none of the arguments being made are really credible for transport given the fact that we cannot reach this target and even therefore of the of the emissions that are expected the rise of electric vehicles is the primary hope for reducing emissions from passenger vehicles however the as we've said before the existing lifespans of cars currently planned and the increased demand for lower cost vehicles will accelerate emissions throughout the period when declines are mandated remember i, I did my own analysis the iea did their own analysis the uh, us uh, department of energy has a division called the Energy Information Administration. They have their own projections for vehicles. Again, mm. consistent, consistent, consistent. The global vehicle stock will peak in 2038. There will be two to three times more conventional vehicles than electric vehicles, even up until 2040. And most of that is from non-OECD. In other words, the non-wealthy countries will be the ones who are going to be adopting the car. So. What does this mean? If you take all these numbers, you calculate the emissions from road and, and particularly the personal transport sector. In 2020, that sector contributed 4.04 gigatons of CO2 per year. Mm -hmm. And by 2035, in the baseline scenario, it will hit 7.6. So from four to 7.6, Whereas if you were to meet the target of 1.5C, which everyone else is aiming for, we would need to go down to 2.5. So there's a gap of over five gigatons. So this is more than what we actually produce today will be the gap mm. in only 15 years. For reference, the only time 
any country has ever tried to do that level of emissions reduction was Russia after 1990. Well, because of an economic collapse, yes. So, you know, it created chaos and criminality and a lot of effects which are still resonating today. And then we had an authoritarian regime arise in order to sort of, you know, take the situation back under control. Not a desirable outcome. So the only options to meet the targets are increasingly draconian and aimed at the wealthy consumers. Things like the bans on the production of internal combustion, the bans on used car sales, bans on trade-ins, buybacks, which is usually below market value, and certain bans of use in the form of parking restrictions, congestion, tariffs or tolls, and access restrictions overall. Now, these are some of Mm. these already being implemented. So it's all stick and no carrot. We're seeing, you know, some subsidies for, for electric cars, but generally, as you know, we point out, it's not enough. However, again, these are wealthy nations. China and India alone will have a combined car fleet of over 1 billion vehicles by 2050, six times greater than 2015. And note who were the people holding out at the COP26, China and India. And they were mm-hmm. holding out because of coal. We haven't gotten to the question of our personal vehicles. They're going to have 1 billion between the two of them, and that's actually more than the world has today. The overall car fleet in non-OECD countries will grow five-fold by 2050 in the current demand pathway from the IEA, while the fleet increases by only 16% in OECD. So the OECD, by the way, is not shrinking. It's rising, but it's rising at 16% by 2050, and we're going to see a five-fold, 600% increase in non-OECD. So in addition, <laughs> the story keeps with, in addition, electric cars are not emission neutral unless and until their production and usage is emissions neutral. Conditions which are especially difficult to meet globally in the next 15 to 20 years. In other words, making an electric car is costly. It's reflected in the cost mm-hmm. of production in dollars, etc. that you're paying, but that dollar values has built into it a lot of emissions. Typically, by the way, just a general observation I can make here. Mm. It, 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 people say, well, you know, if you are wealthy, you tend to pollute more. No, if you spend money, you pollute more. You can be wealthy and be a, a monk, you know, and, and not, you know, it's about expenditure. It's consumption that creates climate. And it's almost, you know, in, uncanny how the more money you spend, the more carbon you produce. It's 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 very, very highly correlated because most of the things mm. you buy require carbon to make, to travel, the, the services you obtain, the machines you buy, the buildings you live in, etc. Those consume more because you, you effectively are asking for a bigger footprint. But again, it's about expenditure. So electric cars have big footprints when they are born, but then they make up for it by consuming less. Right now, the estimates are between 50 and 70%. And I know the industry Mm. says, we're going to bring that down. They're going to make them more efficient. We're going to make them cheaper. Again, they've been saying it for 15 years, but look at the market. It's all about premium, premium, premium. You know, whether it's Rivian, whether it's it's Chinese, I'm looking in Europe, uh, you know, electric cars, even from China, are coming in at 50, 60,000 euros as the starting price. So, in other words, EVs won't save us. Under the current conditions, the transport sector will continue to increase its emissions, even if other sectors decrease their emissions. And therefore, transport will go from 24%, and this is my estimate, 
transport mm. will go from 24% to 50% of global emissions. Imagine that this sector is going to be the largest contributor to emissions globally. And of that sector, the personal car is going to be the largest component. Mm. So this is why this is why micromobility is so important for climate. We've been dancing around it. We've been pointing it out that it's efficient. It's better. It's 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 awesome. It's smiles and not miles. It's all these things. But at the end of the day, when you in that you know it comes to the world's attention, that and and right now we're not acting because of, yes, of course we're, we we need to reduce coal, but coal is an easy target. Let me put it another way. Road transport will be the largest single source of emissions and personal vehicles the single biggest climate threat. And the decisions mm -hmm. on vehicle choices are personal decisions made by hundreds of millions of individuals, not totally. by government or industry leaders in response to political pressure. Now, of course, government and industry can influence the supply and the demand, but unlike the let's say coal burning sector, unlike the mining sector, unlike the X, Y, or Z sectors, where decisions are made by a handful of people, probably government industry together. Yes, it's complicated. Yes, maybe hundreds of people globally, if you look at it this way. Everybody's there arguing and bickering and trying to split the pie and split the pain. But at the end of the day, when you talk about vehicles, you're talking about hundreds of millions of decision makers. And this is why today in the face of all of this climate stress, we're buying bigger cars, we're buying more and more unnecessarily large SUVs, unnecessary large pickup trucks, and being egregious in our overconsumption. These are individuals making these choices and no one at COP and not Greta Thunberg and not any of the demonstrators are out there demonstrating against the fact that individuals are buying more big vehicles. That mm -hmm. is the real question in my mind as to why, why we haven't turned to that. So to understand, now this is, this is crucial, to understand how consumer behaviors and decisions are changed, we need to understand markets. It's not just saying, let's sit behind closed doors, you know, smoking cigars and decide what to do. This is about really understanding markets and that means demand and supply and also in terms of marketing. The answers require innovation, not just invention, not just saying, oh, you know, Eureka. So the point is that if you look at markets and understand markets, who does best at understanding markets? Well, it's companies, typically small ones who invent them, typically, you know, startups who create innovations and also who understand product market fit. That's what everybody talks about when you're in this business is sort of figuring out how to get people to change their behaviors. So fundamentally, this is the call to action for our industry is that we don't make changes by talking to deaf ears of so-called leaders. We do it by talking directly to consumers. We do it by talking to cities, which are at the bottom of the hierarchy of governments. We talk about communities. We talk about getting bike lanes and access. We talk about behaviors and we provide product that creates incentives for people to change their own behavior. And so we are the only ones who are providing carrots and not sticks. That's the thesis of micromobility as, as it comes to climate. Now, I have about 20 slides <laughs> that follow this thesis about mm. how the numbers stack up for micromobility. And that means multiplying 
the efficiencies, the trip distances and the trip demands so that we can get to the target that we need. And globally, that means we need to hit a target of emissions on, in terms of grams of CO2 per kilometer or passenger kilometer well below. So the, the global target, to give you an idea, the global target in order to meet 1.5 C means that we have mm. to be at 35.6 grams of CO2 per passenger kilometer. I know these numbers mean are very difficult to understand, and we're working on that. You'll hear about it on the next podcast as to how yeah. better understand. Yeah, yeah, we've got we've got stuff coming in that regard. Yeah. Can we just put that thirty five points or thirty six thirty five points thirty six grams per kilometer? Because my understanding is all the cars that are available today, even the most like fuel efficient ICE cars, are in the like seventy max. Yep. Correct, and that's the yep. point. And, and if you look at automobility, it ranges from about seventy to above. Well, this is for about 90%, let's say there's always outliers. But mm. the United States overall, this is the whole country, averages over about 170, 170, not 35. India is about right now 70, okay, because there's a lot of two-wheelers, there's a lot of buses. So when you, sure. you, know, you blend everything in, you know, I've split this up in terms of regions and modes. And so there, there's a, a way to, to look at the distributions, you know, all this is public data. And when you go through it and you see at the end of the day that the target is so below what cars can achieve, even below the median of transit, even transit can't do it right now. Now, of course, if mm. it were 100% electric transit, we would get better. If it was 100% automobile, it would be below 100, which is great. But we're not, you know, the- You mean EV? Yeah, the most EV, the best EVs are below 100. The most economical cars are plug-in hybrids are getting about 100 as well. So we need to be a third of that. And micromobility, now micromobility will not cover the distances that are needed at the high end, but we need to have a blend and that's perfectly fine. We think, we, you know, micro eventually will take over more and more distances, but I think for substituting the low end but it's about blending at the end of the day it's blending all the demand all the regions all the economics to to be able to hit this target and i've done a couple of scenarios there's not just a complaint here there's a, a there's a proposal there's a suggestions or several opportunities here so let me you know i went through and simulated what the effects would be if we had had different mixes of modes in the world mm. so for example mm -hmm. what is the outcome of 50 percent evs in use as opposed to you sure. know what we have today what is the effect of electric buses which actually turns out to be a big win in terms of reduction of what is the effect of 50 percent micromobility but that's a big ask but it's there what is the effect of banning suvs and this is an interesting one because you know an suv ban would instantly wipe out like 20-30% of the emissions in the world for transport. Think about that. Whatever gains we've been having from EVs have been wiped out by increase in SUV usage. So mm. we're not actually seeing a reduction yet. And then the more extreme cases of like, what would you get from 100% EV, 100% micro, and what would you get if everything was electric? So micro plus EV plus uh, electric buses. All of these outcomes I've sort of calculated and can plot on the graph. I'll say this, that only the most aggressive, this last one I mentioned, only going 100% micro with 100% bus with 100% EV, do we get below 35. If you do hmm. just EVs, you don't get there. If you do just buses, electric, you don't get there. You have to have 
the micro mix in order to hit that target. So yeah. Now, so can I just jump in here? Sure. Because this is so counter to a lot of the like even what would be considered forward thinking policy in the environmental space on how we get into and in, into lower emissions so for example i've just been reading how to save us from a climate disaster or how to avoid a climate disaster from bill gates and also from sol griffith who wrote a book called electrify which is fantastic both excellent reads i'm waiting to get into john Dor's book as well about scaling and scaling and speed but the point about this is that like you know the conversations that i've had with rocky mountain institute and with other environmental spaces they're like just trying to get electric cars across the line that nobody's done this calculation as far as i can see and i just want to say i'm very excited that you did it horace because i mean i've been trying to work out how to get this work done for a long time and it's great because you just bring such a brilliant mind to it um well i must protest because i'm just an amateur when it comes to this because i just took the public numbers put them in a spreadsheet did some simple calculations by my standards i mean these these aren't non-linear calculations these are very simple arithmetic mm-hmm. what i've also listened to is some folks who do this in a much more complex taking into account a lot of other factors you know i call this like a back of the envelope almost calculation but there are sure, people who's sure. who are in academia who who dive deep into this and they come across as being extremely pessimistic they're saying simply the numbers don't add up because i think they're looking at the same well the raw numbers and then they're they're projecting EV adoptions and they're projecting all these things. And they're saying, you know, under the most optimistic, like the IEA, I think what the IEA did in this scenario where we kind of really hit our targets and there's a miracle that occurs, they simply said, yeah, well, by some means, we're gonna get to this target by 2070, but a lot of things have to be invented along the way that don't exist. Do they include the autonomy, just out of curiosity? Well, some have tried, I don't think the IEA did, but those who have tried, they immediately get hung up on all these questions because we don't know how behaviors will change. We don't know if people will use them and abuse them, you know, whether these vehicles are more economical to sort of drive around randomly, you know, so that they don't have to pay for parking. So what if scenarios, okay, so so if what if the electricity cost goes up? What if the parking cost goes up? What if rush hours are different because of this, there's so many things that will have to be understood about behaviors that I think autonomy, to me, is I, I see as as likely that autonomy will lead to more waste than than that it would lead to more efficiency. Because, because frankly, I think it depends on who the early adopters are. We we had the same issues with car sharing. Everybody thought it would be sort of utopian. But now we realize that there's, you know, in many cases, it actually adds to congestion. It adds to... Oh, this is ride sharing with things like Uber and things like that. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, what people did, what people, this is the key. Like I said in the preamble, we have to understand human behavior in order for us to develop a solution. And that involves understanding the incentives and the disincentives and understanding how to get people to want to do the right thing. Right now, people are saying, yeah, I'm all for lowering emissions, but don't take away my car. And by the way, next time I intend to buy a bigger one. So how do we change behaviors? It's just as like in my case, assuming autonomy is possible, which is a big assumption, but will people simply use it to do more dumb things? I don't, you know, we just don't know what the types of behaviors that will arise are. Yeah, I mean, look, Horace, 
I, I certainly think the business model shifting around autonomy to the idea that you might be able to get a shared autonomous vehicle. I mean, that was what I was trying to work on at Uber in 2015. I was very preposterously early, but it was this idea that like, yeah, hey, we, I could see that the numbers wouldn't stack up back in 2015, mm. 2014, you know, it was like, clearly these aren't going to work. Even if you went from, so, even if Tesla went to millions of, you know, production, productive units a year, the timeframes that we're going to get are, are not going to get there. Again, I, I hate to just keep harping on this we don't solve the problem unless we get people to change behaviors now you can say yes. and this is the first thing that people tell me when i tell them micro is a possible answer to the climate crisis they say but but wait a minute people don't like to ride bikes or they don't feel safe or they don't have bike lanes or they don't there are all these issues about oh that sounds yicky that sounds hard that sounds uncomfortable that sounds ineffective like, like it's so easy to find out what the objections are you just post a declaration on twitter and like boom you're gonna get bombarded you're gonna, you'll get an immediate avalanche of people saying no and my answer is this if you would have lived through the, the personal computer revolution and the mobile phone revolution, you would have heard the same things early on. No, these new machines are not good enough. Nobody wants to mess around with typing on a keyboard. This We're talking 1980s. Nobody mm. knows how to type. Nobody knows how to use a mouse. Nobody knows how to type DOS commands. Forget about computers. Nobody's going to use them. They require behavioral change. They require behavioral change. And I had the same thing. And I was arguing with friends. And I'm not, this wasn't even with the internet. It was with friends and saying, hey, man, someday you're going to have a smartphone in your pocket. They're like, hell no. I'm never going to get one of these things. It's a stupid idea. Look at the, how complicated this phone is already. And they're like, I don't know how to use the T9 keyboard. How many ways are there you know, to screw up this thing? etc. It doesn't have battery life. The call quality is terrible. There's no coverage. There's no data network. The data is slow. All these problems were all put in front of us for 30 years now, at least, saying that people will not change their behaviors. They love their typewriters. They love their landlines. And yet, and yet, more than 4 billion people on the planet are using what is effectively a personal computer in their pocket. How did we get here? And this is why I'm, you know, coming from that world into transportation, this is why I'm able mm. to be so adamant because I've seen with my eyes, with my people I know, behavioral change. So much so that now we are complaining that we're behaving strangely and, you know, we're addicted to these things and kids these days, they don't know how to do anything properly, right? We're complaining the next generation is growing up without keyboards or mm. that they're growing up without the technologies of the 90s you know they don't know what a fax machine is they don't know what a record player is yes good that they shouldn't know so my point is the next generation or the one after is not is going to not know how to drive is not going to even use a car we have to have the faith that it's possible to change it's possible because people have changed before and they've changed mm -hmm. drastic the more you read history like going back to the 50s and then before then the whole 20th century my grandmother was born in 1913 and she died in 2005 now think about that century that she lived almost that's mm -hmm. like she grew up in the time when there were no airplanes she hadn't seen a car until she was probably 25 years old didn't mm -hmm. see one and yet by the end of her life she could fly intercontinentally you know she could be chauffeured around and you know she never learned to drive but she basically you know was able to use long distance telephones etc so in one lifespan it was possible to go from an agrarian 
rural society to international urban society, which we did. And, you know, she adapted as best she could. And that's the thing. Keep your time frames in, you know, in mind as being human lifespans. And if you do, you'll see, yeah, okay, maybe it'll take 10 years longer than I thought, but that's nothing. We got to change behaviors. And when you go back and ask, okay, who changed the behaviors of the past generations in terms of telephones, in terms of computers, in terms of mobility? Who did it? Was it governments? Was it authorities? They enabled it. Certainly, they wrote laws and they, you know, regulated. But at the same time, there had to be people who innovated. There had to be people who understood behaviors, who said, okay, we're going to get you into this vehicle because that works for you. Henry Ford's, the Sony of the world's, and so on. And of course, the Apple's and the IBM's and, and many others. But the ideas were, you know, part of the process of creation. And that's where I, I'm hopeful that we are not stuck with cars. We are not stuck with the roads we have and the infrastructures we have, which, as I said, before those are called sunk costs don't justify mm. don't justify repeating the same mistake because you did it once already it doesn't make sense there's a better way do the better way that's why you know this talk is about climate and when presented with climate you know it was like well we have the solution here or a solution but you don't you know you don't have yet faith in it so let's present evidence um, mm-hmm. and, and then we'll get you to have faith. So that's what it's about. So that's where we are. When it comes down to it, because I mean, all of this messaging makes a lot of sense. There's also, I think, the general messaging as well. If you're to talk to someone about it, sort of like, what are the, what are the things that I can do to help contribute to reducing climate change? The single biggest thing that you can do is not take flights and ride an e-bike. Those are like well, the two the biggest things you can do. There's been studies, actually. So they go in the following order. And I, I, I'm i sorry, I don't remember all the details. The number one thing they recommend, actually, is not to have a second child. That like adds several zeros to anything else you can do. The least things you can do <laughs> is recycling. It doesn't do much at yeah. all. But, but, I know. You know, and the, the, the second biggest was not the flying. It was actually to not drive own, or use a car frequently. And, this, and then there was mm. something about eating meat. And I think flying was like fifth or sixth. Like Yeah, it kind of depends on who you are. Like yeah. for you, Horace, <laughs> I'm the same. I mean, one flight from New Zealand and I'm, I've blown everything I can do in New Zealand during the entire year. Like I just, uh, probably so, probably so. But yeah. I'm just saying that there, it depends on the flights and so on. But there, there are things that people do. By the way, and this is why I'm, I take issue with things like this. First of all, like saying the no child policy or one child policy. But but actually, you know, if you really were to put down what is the most effective thing is actually to, for you to commit suicide. And yeah, I don't, well, exactly, right? I don't like that. And I don't like the idea of not having children either because I think these are not, these are contrary to human conditions. In other words, there's, you cannot contradict basic human uh, uh, needs and desires. You have to work within those and then get people to be, to change their behaviors because you you make more attractive options as opposed to saying, hey, deny yourself, you know, deny this and that. So I'd rather we, we have a positive outlook. So this is why amongst the things that people can be, I think, incentivized to do, okay, instead of saying, for example, don't eat meat, I'd say offer delicious alternatives which are even better than meat i mean you know most people haven't tried really good vegetarian and and it, you know, it can be amazing yeah or oh, certainly i mean that's that's also the, the the other thing as well that the notion of disrupting the old 
the old way of doing it so so i mean that's why i think the fake meat companies are doing so preposterously well at the moment if you look on the stock market they're you know beyond meats doing very well impossible is doing incredibly well the thing that i can see that's coming down the road is like if you can be even vaguely cost competitive with that when you look at how the butchery industry works and general meat production works and all that sort of stuff it's like there's so much waste in that industry, which will get absolutely just cleaned up by all of the new technology that's coming down the pipe. For the right, but that's for that's example. where you see the technology people came up with ideas and said, okay, we need to reduce meat production. The first thing they said, no, we're not going to offer everybody to eat kale. We're going to offer everybody to eat, I called ersatz, or, you know, not fake, but sort of equivalency meat equivalency mm -hmm. so the, yep. the idea was that okay we don't want to change you into you know a vegan but we want you to enjoy more or less now over a generation or two you might move the target away from why do you need a burger in the first place maybe you could have something else this is coming to you know from someone who didn't grow up in a society where american fast food was the primary source of nutrition right i i grew up in a world where we had other types of meals and that's true in asia and other parts of the world as well so maybe over time people will improve their palates a little bit and, and diversify away from this kind of meat-based dishes anyway so so mm. but the, the point the point is that you have to provide an alternative to say hey this yes. is better yeah and that, that, I mean, it's the, it's the quintessential quote from Buckminster Fuller, right? Like, you do not fix problems by fighting them directly. You you make them obsolete. Yes. You, make, and, uh, you, you, or, you provide or, a better solution to make the old thing obsolete. Or Clay's idea is that you create a parallel market or you create a new market where instead of saying we're better than what the current condition is with respect to, a, you know, the performance metric you have, we're going to create something that you didn't ask for. Mm -hmm. Henry Ford saying, you know, if you asked what people wanted, they'd say a faster horse or, you know, app, Steve Jobs. If you asked what people wanted out of a phone, they would have probably said, oh, I wanted to have longer battery life. And instead he gave them something with less battery life, but a bigger screen. And so, you know, it's like saying this is why today the auto industry is just giving a bigger and better car and the electric guys aren't doing much better they're also delivering a bigger and better car so this is why you know at the end of the day i i keep asking can you give me a worse car please how how mm. can we figure out a way to deliver a worse car but a better object in the end because it turns out that it does different things so mm. so that's why that's why this is a history repeating so anyway but the thesis of when you play back the script for the cop 26 you realize how under, and I'm curious, by the way, you mentioned that so many people who are really trying to make a difference are still hung up on the electric car. And it's like, to me, that was like an, an obvious thing eight years ago. Well, it's funny, actually, I was in Copenhagen as a climate delegate at the Copenhagen Climate Summit of 2009. And I remember going around and to be honest, actually, the only mobility options that were there that were interesting that I remember were was better place and they had spent sh just a ton of money hiring out a whole hotel and ariel sharon put, like he came and spoke and it was this whole thing and it was you know but it was it was just so much money around and again right like when i think about exactly your point which is the people who were building these solutions don't have the money they don't turn up to those conferences they don't have the ability to go and get in front of everybody and yet it's the same conversation we're having in where i live at the moment in new zealand because you know we're talking about it and going we want to increase the amount of electric cars that are being sold etc we've just put in a fee bait 
and all of the car companies are coming and presenting to parliament and yet nobody in parliament is talking about the fact that we're going to outsell new cars next year with electric bikes and scooters like that's just not even mm. it doesn't even factor into the conversation like we're winning no. but nobody's paying attention no it's again and you you can't fight it at the end of the day you may try to shout louder you may you know and all of these advocacy groups and all of these ambassadors from all of these you know cycling ambassadors and they're trying but they're they're tilting at windmills the way to this thing always plays out is to just carry on building great products and services and getting it in front of customers mm-hmm. you know i'm sure henry ford wasn't invited to any railroad conferences you know I'm sure, <laughs> you know, that's very true the yeah. railroad guys were probably completely uninterested and one of the things i point out by the way is if you were to think back to these moments in time where we we had these giant transitions we went from steam to internal from external to internal combustion we went from telegraphy which was available for almost a century before the telephone came around the telegraph was the 19th century invention it was the so-called 19th century or the victorian internet okay there was a global communications network based on telegraph and here comes a guy alexander graham bell and says i can send voice over those wires none of the companies that were in the telegraph business took him up on it they could have bought him out for peanuts for nothing to convert their networks to to voice none of them did if you go back and ask again, all the railroad guys, they had so much money, they were called robber barons. They were so rich. These were the industrialists of the 19th century, the, the Rockefellers, mm. the, the J.P. Morgans, the, the Leland Stanford, which made Stanford University. All those were railroad magnates in the United States and many others globally that were in their own domains. None of them invested anything in automobility, nothing. Back in those days, if you were a startup, you didn't have a VC to go to. You could only mm. get money from friends, family, or you know, wealthy investors. You could go to J.P. Morgan and ask him, as you would, you know, an inventor. Actually, one guy did, which was Edison. Edison was kind of the guy of his time who who did manage to you know walk in those circles and get investors to invest in his crazy ideas but when you mm. when you when you look at some of these things as how they developed it wasn't the incumbents sitting up and doing something about the new thing and yet the world completely changed completely decimated their core businesses and they just disappeared in a matter of decades. So this is, it happened over and over again, and it didn't happen just in the last 30 years as if we think that the tech world is so new. It happened mm-hmm. in the 19th century, it happened in the 20th century, it's happening in the 21st century. It's always the same. So don't give up and don't lose heart if COP26 ignores micro. In fact, if it didn't ignore micro, I would be nervous because mm. you know that means that it's kind of, going to get pulled into their direction as being sustaining somehow it's proof this is proof as much as anything that it's disruptive because it's ignored it's out of consciousness it's not even like it's not even getting laughed at because it's not comprehensible enough to be laughed at it's not Mm. something that penetrates the skull so you can't get there from here as they say you know it's one of the things i i said in the keynote yeah which people should go check out and I will put as a link into the show notes. But look, Mm. as you know, we are going to be doing another episode following up after this on the recent post that you did on the modicum of transport, the MOT, the new 
way of measuring a, a kind of a unit of transport, which and I'm it came very out excited of this, about. Yeah, it came out of this work, that idea. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 so we'll, we'll follow up. We're going to record that on early next week, and we should have hopefully these up in, in quick succession. So keep an eye out for those. But in the meantime, thank you, Horace. I love it when you get on a rant. It's great. And yeah, looking forward to future discussions in this space. 